Have you ever wanted to learn a new language, but just didn't have the time or money? I may have a solution for you. Her name is Jessica, and she gives free Chinese lessons daily at 11 p.m. Beijing time and 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Chinese is fun and easy if you have the right teacher. Let Jessica be that teacher and introduce yourself to the fastest growing language in the international job market today at tinyurl.com backslash tcjessica and tell her Ian sent you. Do you like fine art but think it might be out of your price range? Do you have a vision for a painting that you'd like to see brought to life but you just don't have the skill? I might have a solution for you. Art by Daisy. With decades of experience, Daisy offers high-quality, affordable watercolor paintings suitable for hanging in your home, office, or even as a gift. With prices starting at just $55, visit tinyurl.com backslash artbydaisy to find out more. Hello, and welcome to the DeathCast. I'm your host, author, and journalist, Ian Tott, and I'd like to thank you for joining me as we prepare to take our third look at the Unabomber Ted Kaczynski. Before we get into it, as always, I have the normal show notes. If you would like to follow me on social media, just search for the Deathcast, Deathcast Pod, or Deathcast Official. You can find me on most social media platforms under any one of those monikers. However, if you want to interact with me, your best bet is to find me on TikTok under DeathCast Official. If you'd like to help support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do that. First and foremost is go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe to the show, and leave a five-star review. You can also go to buymeacoffee.com backslash the DeathCast, make a one-time donation, And if you want to get a little more bang for your buck, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash dcast patreon, where for as little as $2 a month, you can get access to early ad-free shows as well as exclusive content. I just wrapped up the... Columbine series that I was doing on there. It is the first of many more to come. As always, I want to thank our patrons, Channel, Anthony, and we have two brand new patrons this week. One is Robert. The other is True Crime University. And I know the person behind True Crime University I consider her a friend. She is a fantastic podcaster. Name is Debbie. She has a master's degree in criminal justice. If you like what I do here on this show, I cannot recommend True Crime University enough. Debbie does deep dives on cases. She doesn't pull any punches. She can be pretty graphic at times, but she does a phenomenal job. So, because she signed up for Patreon, I wanted to give her a little extra shout-out because I really appreciate it. So, thank you, Robert and Debbie, for coming on board. 
All right, now that all of that is out of the way, get yourself something to drink, find a nice comfy chair, kick back, relax. I've got my coffee. I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. When we left off last week, Kaczynski had sent another bomb to the University of Berkeley in California before going silent for a number of years. That is not to say, however, that things in this case were not progressing. Somewhere during this period of time, the early 1980s, famed FBI profiler John Douglas, along with other individuals, compiled a profile of the individual that they believed was responsible for this series of attacks. And in this profile, Douglas stated that it was believed that the bomber was an individual of above-average intelligence with some sort of connection to academia, most probably having a grudge against institutions of higher learning. This was further expounded upon when they updated this particular profile, stating that they believed the individual was a neo-Ludite, which, for those who are unaware, this is coming from Wikipedia. Neo-Luddism, or New Luddism, is a philosophy opposing many forms of modern technology. The term Luddite is generally used as a prerogative applied to people showing technophobic leanings. The name is based on the historical legacy of the English Luddites, who were active between 1811 and 1817. Neo-Luddism is a leaderless movement of non-affiliated groups who resist modern technologies and dictate a return of some or all technologies to a more primitive level. If you've been a fan of the show for any considerable period of time, you know that I believe that a lot of the science behind profiling is bunk. It's garbage. And the reason for that is more often than not, as despite what the media likes to portray in television shows and in movies, profiles are wildly off. Which is why when they do them, Oftentimes, they will do multiple profiles over a period of years or months as the suspect that they are searching for remains at large, more information becomes available to them, and they are able to analyze the data more thoroughly. Now, I know that's a controversial opinion within the true crime community, but the facts speak for themselves. More times than not, these profiles are way off the mark. Sometimes they'll get aspects of a particular suspect correct, as they did here with Ted Kaczynski. But more often than not, they're, you know, they get pieces cherry-picked that are match what they're looking for, and the rest of it has nothing to do with this individual. Again, as I said, you know, the media, television, movies, books, that type of thing, they like to portray it as, you know, a, a, a rock-hard science. Really, it's not. It's psychology based upon years of interviews with 
already convicted perpetrators who the individuals creating these profiles go in, interview, get information on from them. Oftentimes, they'll have multiple interviews with them in an effort to try and get a general idea of what type of characteristics they should be looking for for a particular subject, such as, you know, an individual like, you know, a Ted Bundy who targeted young college-aged women with brunette hair that was parted down the middle. What were the things that he looked for? What was his childhood like? All of those things are what they take when they create these profiles, these basic profiles, and then they look at these other profiles, these base profiles, and try and figure out which aspects more likely than not fit what they're currently dealing with. And from this base information and the information that they glean from crime scenes, they attempt to build this profile of the individual they believe may be responsible. As I said, certain aspects of this profile were spot on. Unfortunately, other analysts within the FBI came up with a different profile wherein they believed that the person responsible for these crimes was a blue-collar worker most likely working for the airlines as a mechanic. And it was actually this profile that the FBI decided to go with in 1983 when they released this profile and then proceeded to offer a $1 million reward as they set up a 1-800 number to try and generate tips that might lead them to the apprehension of the man now known as the Unabomber. So after this bombing in 1983 at Berkeley, Kaczynski kind of goes into a hibernation point. It's not that he was not going to continue doing the bombings, it was that he was working on refining his technique and also learn looking for targets. And the way that Kaczynski mostly went about gating his targets was by researching within the local library where he would find individuals in a particular field and get their address at the colleges that they worked at and they would then become his next target. Because it wasn't the individuals per se that he was targeting. It was what they did for a living. It was where they work and where, where the institutions that they worked at represented and what he believed these institutions and these specific fields were going to be working on. During this period of time when Kaczynski is quiet, he's refining his bomb-making abilities. He's also writing a lot of letters to his friend in Mexico, as well as to his brother David and to his parents. That changed on May 15, 1985, when another package was discovered at the University of California in Berkeley inside the computer lab on a table. A graduate student by the name of John Hauser came upon this package and picked it up, and as soon as he picked it up, it went off in his hands. 
As a result of this, Hauser lost four fingers as well as severely severed an artery in his right arm and lost most of the vision in his left eye. So this was Kaczynski's eighth bomb, and I'm going to be reading an article from the Los Angeles Times that came out on May 16th by George Ramos and Mark A. Stein. Quote, Box explodes in UC Berkeley lab shattering graduate student's arm. Berkeley, a small white plastic box exploded Wednesday in a computer lab at the University of California, Berkeley, shattering the right hand and arm of a 26-year-old Air Force captain who apparently had tried to open it. The injured man was identified as John Hauser of the U.S. Air Force Academy at Colorado Springs, Colorado, a graduate student taking special training at UC Berkeley. He underwent six hours of surgery at nearby Herrick Hospital. Doctors said later that Hauser will never regain full use of his right hand and arm and may lose sight in his left eye. Hauser is a pilot, a university spokesman said. The blast destroyed the small lab in Corey Hall in the northeast corner of the sprawling Berkeley campus. There was no fire. University spokesman Ray Kalvig said that there is no evidence to link the bombing to a two-day meeting of the UC Board of Regents scheduled to start Thursday in another building about half a mile from Corey Hall. The Regents are expected to discuss university investments in firms that do business in South Africa, the subject of a generally peaceful 35-day demonstration by students here. We know of no connection between what went on in that building and, what, and what's going on anywhere else on campus, Colvick said. He added that there is no apparent connections between the lab bomb and a dissimilar pipe bomb that was found in a disarmed Monday at San Francisco State University. Andy Packer, 24, a mechanical engineer and graduate student and a friend of Hauser, said he was in an adjoining room when he heard the explosion at 1.45 p.m. I raced into the hall, Packer said. There was a lot of smoke. He was screaming and his arm was totally wrecked. Three professors administered first aid until Berkeley Fire Department paramedics arrived. One of the professors, Diogis J. Arnalox, suffered similar injuries in the last campus bombing, which occurred in the same building in July 1982. That case has not been solved. University spokesman Tom Debley said that Wednesday's explosion occurred when Hauser took a break from his work and reached over to touch the box, which Packer said no one had noticed until then. Corey Hall is a four-story concrete structure that is home to the Department of Electrical Engineering and Computer Sciences. Kolvig said that he is not aware of any connection between research done in the building and either U.S. military or the South African government, two frequent targets of Berkeley radicals. University spokesmen were uncertain how the explosion might affect security for the region's meeting. Before the incident, 86 campus police officers from four University of California campuses had been recruited for the job with assistance available from the Berkeley and Oakland Police Departments. In addition, UC Police Lieutenant William Foley said demonstrators outside the meeting will be kept under surveillance from a helicopter. Whether it is hapstance that Kaczynski just so happened to pick a time when there was a lot of political strife going on at the University of Berkeley, 
or whether he knew that this was going on and decided to strike at that point is unknown. However, knowing Kaczynski, knowing what his aims were, more likely than not, when he learned of the fact that there had been demonstrations going on and that the university had at least tangentially initially linked the bombing to those demonstrations, he was probably angry about this. Because while Kaczynski was a recluse, really, by this point, he did have an ego on him, and he took pride, if that's the right word, in what it was he was doing. Obviously, the FBI is immediately on this. Their task force had kind of grown a little bit dormant in the previous years as other crimes had occurred and there had been no new attacks by the Unabomber, but now they've got one. They're involved in it pretty quickly looking at the evidence, but they don't have a whole lot of time to sift through the wreckage as less than a month later, Kaczynski is going to strike again. What they did note from this particular device was that this pipe bomb had metal caps on the end of it, as opposed to the previous devices, which had had wooden caps on them. Now, the metal caps were important as they were much more destructive. Again, the moniker FC was found etched into a piece of metal inside of this bomb, and investigators very quickly realized, with even out that particular piece of evidence, that the construction of this bomb was similar to others that had been sent before. So while the FBI is going over all of this, they receive word from the Boeing Company in Auburn, Washington, on June 13, 1985, that a package had been received at their corporate offices about a month prior and had simply sat there untouched. The local bomb squad from the Auburn Police Department shows up and is quickly able to determine that this bomb had been sent round about the time that the bomb at the University of Berkeley had been sent, and in fact had not gone, gone off because the batteries that were used to power the device had actually gone dead. So Kaczynski was really looking to up the ante with this particular set of bombings, you, you know, trying to set them off either at the same time on the same day or within days of one another and he was thwarted in this by faulty batteries. With both of these situations, the FBI ramped up its investigation into the Unabomber attacks significantly. While they suspected that it might be a lone individual, they could not rule out the idea that it was a group of domestic terrorists operating somewhere in the United States who were behind these attacks, and that meant that they had to cast their net even wider than they already had in an attempt to try and discover who was responsible. It's known that the task force somewhere around this point decided that 
anyone who had been born prior to 1955 as, in their experience, what they termed as serial killers at this point, generally that would be outside the age range for an individual who would be doing this type of thing. As most serial killers start their killing sprees, in their teens, early 20s, and unless they're caught, many of them actually do peter out by the time they're in their 30s, as life events often occur, and they find that they no longer have the time or even the drive to continue on killing as they once had. That's not a hard and fast rule, but it is something that the FBI has acknowledged that does take place. As with all rules, there are exceptions, such as Samuel Little, who kept killing up until the day he was arrested. So now they're focusing more on individuals who would likely have been born after 1955, have gone through high school during, you know, the 60s, maybe the early 70s, but to the general public and to the media at large, very little information was being released concerning both the investigation as well as the method of the attacks. The reason being for this, they did not want to tip off the individual that was sending these bombs and let them know, you know, hey, this particular piece is faulty and we discovered it so we know they're all connected or that they're leaving behind crucial evidence. However, they did not know at this point was that Kaczynski was intentionally putting clues inside of the bombs, as we discussed in prior episodes, in order to lead law enforcement away from him and towards another fictitious group that did not exist. On November 15, 1985, a package and an accompanying letter were received at the home of Professor James V. McConnell, who is a psychology professor. Now, the letter purported to be from Ralph Klopenberg, stating that he was a Ph.D. candidate at the University of Utah specializing in the history of science. This supposed Klopenberg stated that he wanted McConnell to review his thesis, which was contained in the enclosed package, and that McConnell should pay particular attention to chapters 11 and 12. Nick Law Suino, who was McConnell's research assistant, some databases state that Nick Loss was his student secretary, went and opened the package and it went off, causing Professor McConnell to suffer from temporary hearing loss, whereas Suino suffered extensive burns and shrapnel damage to his body. And this was at the University of Michigan, which, if you'll recall from the last episode, was the first places that Kaczynski had targeted. Obviously, the FBI is involved from the get-go, and 
they find very similar evidence to what had already been found at other crime scenes, they're really amping up this bomb was much more powerful than the two that had been sent out earlier in the year, and they're feeling that it's only a matter of time before a fatality takes place, possibly multiple fatalities. So less than a month after this bombing, Kaczynski strikes again, this time foregoing universities and targeting a computer store in a strip mall in Sacramento, California. Reading an article from December 11th, 1985, this is from the Sacramento Bee by Edgar Sanchez. Mystery Blast Kills Capital Merchant. A Sacramento businessman was killed Wednesday when a bomb that had been left behind his store blew up in his faith, authorities said. The blast shortly after noon mortally wounded Hugh Campbell Scrutton, 38, owner of Rentec Computer Rentals in the Century Plaza Shopping Center at 1537 Howe Avenue, Sacramento Sheriff's Investigators said. The device exploded just moments after Scrutton left his store through the back door and headed for the parking lot, according to reports. The blast blew Scrutton about 10 feet. The first person to arrive at the scene said Sutton scried out, Oh my God, help me. Scrutton of Carmichael was pronounced dead at 12.34 p.m. at University Medical Center. He reportedly took the full force of the blast in his chest. There was no known witnesses. The blast shot shook the entire shopping center and shrapnel was scattered up to 150 yards from the point of the explosion. Shrapnel penetrated the store's real wall, but no one else was hurt. So basically, with this particular attack, this shop owner walks out in back of his store in the alleyway back there, finds a package, bends over to pick it up. As soon as he touches it, it goes off and it kills him, throws him back 10 feet, this blast is much more powerful than all of the previous bombs that Kaczynski had sent. It is also his first fatality. Again, the FBI's already on high alert. Now they have four attacks in less than nine months. They're really ramping up trying to find this individual who's responsible for it, but they're not getting any leads that are helping them get closer to who could be doing this. And again, Kaczynski goes quiet after this attack. It could be that, you know, he was internalizing the fact that he just took a human life, or it could be that Kaczynski was analyzing the data from this attack to see what went right, what went wrong, and how he could make the next attack even bigger. I'm not a betting man, but if I had to bet on it, I would say that because of how analytical Kaczynski's mind was, he was probably somewhere in between. He was probably processing the fact that he did, in fact, kill a target, as well as analyzing the data so that 
when he resumes his bombing spree, he can amp it up even more. This period of time, if we go with the line of thought that Kaczynski was in fact a bona fide serial killer, is known as the cooling off period. Because after this, Kaczynski doesn't attack again until 1987. Even for a serial killer, Vazin is an exceptionally long period of time to go between kills. And it's another reason why I don't believe that Ted Kaczynski should be classified as a serial killer, as despite the lines that he intentionally fed to psychologists, his overall goal was not the taking of human lives, it was the collapse of society. Now, the FBI will say he was a goal-oriented serial killer. And again, I discount that because Kaczynski was not, by his own later admissions, actively trying to kill people. If Kaczynski had wanted to kill individuals with these explosive devices, he was more than capable of making devices that would take out more people per blast. There's another reason Kaczynski went quiet, though, and that was because he was a very intelligent and calculating individual, and by going quiet, he was forcing the police to only work with the information that they already had. He's not giving them any new data to analyze, thus making it more difficult to possibly track him down and arrest him. Kaczynski wasn't idle during this period of time, though. We know that he traveled, visited with his family. We also know that some point during the mid to late 80s, a major schism arose between Kaczynski and his parents, wherein he decided that he was no longer going to see them and would instead only interact with them via letters. And in these letters, he accused his parents of a lot of things, most importantly of pushing him towards academia and, you know, forcing him to live up to his potential, thus putting him in what he perceived as harm's way once he got into college. Again, this goes back to the fact that Kaczynski was a subject of MK Ultra, which he swore up and down had not affected him, but it's apparent the fact that he had umbrage with his parents over, you know, pushing him towards this, that whatever happened within those experiments really did affect him. He also had a falling out with his brother, letting him know that he would only respond to letters from him if it was something important. Meaning, don't be sending me, you know, cordial greetings, anything like that. It had to be something of importance, such as doing with the family, and he instructed his brother on how to let him know that these letters were important by 
doing a very specific marking around the stamp that was on the letter. Remember that that is going to come up later. February 20th, 1987 is the day when authorities got their first actual lead in the Unabomber case. On that day, two individuals witnessed a man wearing a hoodie, its sunglasses, and a ball cap walk into the parking lot behind a store called Cam's Incorporated, which was a computer rental store in a residential neighborhood of Salt Lake City. This individual placed a wooden device in an empty parking space before walking away. At the time, the two witnesses had no idea what this was about. At roughly 11 a.m., the owner of the store, Gary Wright, drives up and notices this box sitting in his parking space. So Wright puts the car in park, gets out, walks up to it, and attempts to kick the box out of the way. It explodes and ends up severing a nerve in his arm. Again, the FBI is all over this canvas in the area with local law enforcement. They find the two witnesses. One witness gives a description of the person who they saw leave the box. And from this description, law enforcement walks away with the belief that the individual responsible for this attack was a quote-unquote fairly young, well-off individual. By this point, Ted Kaczynski, as we already know, is anything but well-off. He's living a life of solitude and squalor. He's also roughly 45 years old. So this leads to some difficulty with the FBI being able to track down the person that they're looking for. Now, if you live within the United States, you have almost certainly seen this sketch. It's a very famous sketch of an individual wearing a hoodie with sunglasses and a mustache. It was posted all over the country in post offices and police departments everywhere. It has been used on t-shirts, on mugs, magazines, you name it. And this is just a little aside because I think it's kind of funny. Years ago when I first grew out a beard during the winter, guys that I worked with decided that because I always wear sunglasses and was wearing a hoodie, I looked like the Unabomber. So as a result of that, now every year on my social media, I do my yearly update of, yes, I know I look like the Unabomber. So it's the kind of thing that makes you giggle. Go check it out. There should be one posted here for this year within the next few days as my beard gets thicker. Kaczynski goes quiet again, and he goes quiet again for a very long period of time, during which... The task force continues to chug away at trying to identify him. But as with many cases that are long-term, they cannot focus all of their attention 24 hours a day, 7 days a week on this singular case. 
So they have to divert their attention, and this kind of allows Ted to slip into the background and, while not necessarily forgotten by the general public at large, he is mostly pushed from the public consciousness. There are still the occasional news stories where the FBI is seeking your help to find the Unabomber, but the case is really dormant so far as the general public is, knows. And it's during this time that Kaczynski has the falling out with members of his family, particularly his brother David, who many have said he was the closest to. It's interesting to note, too, that the falling out with Ted's father is despite the fact that Ted's father had visited him multiple times in Montana and marveled at the life that his son was carving out for himself. It goes to show you how deep the resentments that Ted was feeling actually were. In 1990, Ted's father, Theodore, held a family meeting, and the reason for this was because he had discovered that he had been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. Kaczynski was invited to attend this family meeting as his father wanted to plot out the family's future, and Kaczynski refused to attend. In fact, his brother David sent one of the specially marked envelopes to Ted to let him know that their father was sick. Ted ignored it, and on October 2nd of 1990, Ted Kaczynski's father took his own life by shooting himself in the head. Again, a letter is sent. Again, Ted refuses to attend. And this is the great rift between the brothers Kaczynski. Because with the death of the patriarch of the family, Ted's brother David, who had been living in the wilderness in Texas, decides to come back into society to take care of their mother. And in doing so he rekindles a romantic relationship he had had in high school with a woman by the name of Linda. David and Linda eventually are going to get married. And it's this idea that his brother has gotten married which really severs any form of love that Ted Kaczynski may have had towards his younger brother as he stated in letters to his brother that him getting married and returning to society was a betrayal of him, him being Ted. And it is most likely this perceived betrayal by the person who was closest to him that caused Ted Kaczynski to come out of hiding and begin his bombing spree once again. On June 22, 1993, a geneticist by the name of Charles Epstein received a manila envelope which had been mailed to his home in Tiburon, California. 
Opening the package, Epstein was met with a blast that caused extensive damage to both of his eardrums, partial hearing loss, along with the loss of three fingers. Two days later, on June 24, 1993, David Lerntner, a computer scientist at Yale University, received a similar manila envelope in the mail. Upon opening it, he too was met with a blast. This blast nearly killed him, completely destroying his right hand as it took four fingers, as well as extensive permanent damage to his right eye. Law enforcement were quickly able to determine that both of these packages had been mailed on the same day, June 18th, and had originated in Sacramento, California. I remember when these attacks happened. I don't remember the attacks as they happened in the 1980s, but I remember these attacks because from this point on, the Unabomber really becomes a fixture in the media and was constantly being talked about, constantly being discussed as the FBI and nationwide law enforcement agencies ramped up their efforts to try and identify and apprehend the Unabomber. On March 10th of 1994, an advertising executive for Burson Miller, which is now Burson Con and Wolf, which is a multinational public relations and communications firm by the name of Thomas Moser, opened up a package in his North Caldwell, New Jersey home. I remember this one very well because I grew up in New Jersey. I'm going to read a part of a newspaper article from the New York Daily News dated Sunday, December 11th, 1994. This is by Zachary Margolis and Don Singleton. Mail bomb kills ad exact motive sought in death of Young and Rubicam Veep at New Jersey home. Young and Rubicamp is the precursor to Burson Mart Suller. A top Madison Avenue advertising executive was killed in his palatial New York New Jersey home yesterday when a booby trapped package exploded as he opened it. Thomas Moser, 50, was recently named Executive Vice President and General Manager of Young Rubicon Inc. Worldwide, one of the largest ad agencies in the world. Authorities couldn't immediately determine a motive for the death, Essex County Prosecutor Clifford Miner said last night. There was no indication the executive was involved in any criminal activities or that any threats had been made against him or his family miners said. Police said that when the explosion occurred, about 10.45 a.m., Moser was in the kitchen of his two-story hilltop home in North Caldwell on Aspen Drive in a heavily wooded, wealthy Essex community. Moser's wife, Susan, and his two children, ages 13 years and 15 months, were also in the house, North Caldwell Police Chief James Rush said. Thank the good Lord no one else was injured, 
he said. The kitchen was heavily damaged by the blast, authorities said. Sources said the distraught Miss Mauser was concerned that the attack could be related to her husband's business, particularly to his recent promotion. Officials were checking for possible links to other unsolved bombings. Again, FBI was very quickly able to link this attack to the Unabomber because of the factors we've already discussed, particularly the small pieces of metal engraved with the initials FC, as well as the general construction of the device. And we can see here that Kaczynski is getting much more sophisticated in his ability to create these devices, as well as to mail them through the mail without fear of them going off. And the lethality of these devices is now much greater. And this is in direct relation to the outrage that Kaczynski was feeling at the hands of his brother's supposed betrayal. Do know that during this period of time, the letters Kaczynski was sending to his brother were filled with many rants specifically concerning Kaczynski's political ideologies, his hatred for society as it was, meaning technology. The key piece of evidence that's going to come into play in the next episode is the fact that Kaczynski typed all of his letters, be it the ones he sent to his brother, to his other correspondents, or the false flag letter that had been sent in the early 1980s, which accompanied one of his bombs that had been diffused. And this is a piece of holdback information that the authorities were holding on to because it was their belief that when they eventually capture this individual, they're going to find this typewriter and be able to match the typewriter to the letter that they had. On April 24th, 1995, the president of the California Forestry Association, Gilbert P. Murray, was in his office in Sacramento when a package arrived addressed to his predecessor, William Dennison. Murray opens the package, it goes off, and he is instantly killed. The FBI had put national media and law enforcement on high alert in the preceding years because of what the Unabomber was doing now they amp it up to an entirely different level because now we have two packages back-to-back -back that have claimed human lives, and their worst fears have come true that this individual is not going to stop, and he now has the ability to kill almost at will with the packages that he is sending. And now they're really in a scramble to try and find out who this individual is and to bring them to justice. And that is where we are going to leave off this week.
with this 1995 bombing that has taken a life, next week we are going to get in really into the investigation and eventual apprehension of Ted Kaczynski. I hope that you have enjoyed part three on the Unabomber, and if you did, please share it with your friends, family on social media. Help the show to get bigger. Until next time, the Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing in association with Big Pond Podcasting. Stay morbid.